This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic. But today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton and adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. This is a break from the normal BritFlix.com podcast service, what I'm grandly calling the Future of Film series, where I talk to a number of professionals across the film industry about the impact of COVID and perhaps look into our crystal balls and see what that might mean for the future of film, the future of cinema, and in particular, what it means for indie filmmakers. Without further ado, on with the show. Recently, as in during the pandemic, I've interviewed 20 people who are taking part in Inside Pictures programme, and we talked a lot about what does the pandemic mean for the film industry and what does a post-COVID world mean for the film industry. And understandably, everyone had a lot of guesses and opinions, but nobody had the answer because there was 20 different answers, there was 20 different impacts, and this is people who work in production, who work in distribution, who work in exhibition, who work in sales, people who work in stop motion animation. You know, there was no real full understanding of what this might all mean. So with that in mind, I reached out to people to see if I could get some opinions on maybe how they see what's what's happened, what's happening and what might happen in the future. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Emmanuel Ayama Sigway. Welcome to the show. Welcome, Stuart. Good to be here. Now, for context, um, you are the one. You, are you the founder or the co-founder of British Urban Film Festival? I am the founder. You're yes. the founder of British Urban Film yeah. Festival. And what year was that? Uh, this was July 2005. 2005. So we're in we're in the 16th year of what what is the. Uh, British Urban Film Festival's life. Now, as a little bit of history, before we get into it, to set set you up as my guest, 2019 ended brilliantly for you, didn't it? 27th of December, announced New Year's Honours list. Uh, you were going to receive an MBE for services to black and minority ethnic film industry. That must have felt like you're on top of the world. 
it did when they pronounced my full name, which is Chukwemeka Emmanuel Anyamusikwe. I'm glad you didn't throw that gauntlet down to me. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't do it to anyone, to be fair. But it, there's a funny story behind that, actually, because on, on the day that I actually went to Buckingham Palace yeah. to receive the MBE, um, unbeknownst to me until the very end, one of the many courtiers that they have at the Queen's house, mm. and you have to remind yourself that someone actually lives here. <laughs> it's a massive house. But yeah, so on the day, one of the courtiers was saying we had a kind of a, a bet as to who would mess up on getting your name wrong. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. But they actually all got it right. So what had happened was when we arrived there, we as in myself, my wife, Claire, um, my cousin, Nikki, and my brother-in-law, Andy. So when we got there to kind of register, et cetera, mm-hmm. one of the guys there, um, who's an Asian guy, confirmed my full name, surname, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't think anything of it at the time, but the next time I actually saw him was when I was in the queue, as it were. So basically it was a, a one-hour ceremony. There was a hundred of us getting our medals. And I was in the same lineup as Ainsley Harriet and the horse racing trainer, Nikki Henderson. Okay. We were going to get our medals this day. So I was literally in the queue with Ainsley. And as we were coming up to meet Prince Charles, do all the bowing and all the small talk and all the rest of it. Yeah. I saw the same Asian guy standing behind Prince Charles. So I thought, what's he doing there? And then when I heard my name being called out to the audience, Chukwemeka Emmanuel Anyamusikwe, it occurred to me that he had had a word in the MC's ear. Mm. So when he heard me confirm my name in reception, he'd actually recorded it and given it to the MC to say, this is how he says his name. Wow. And the courtier told me this story afterwards, said we didn't want to mess it up. Well, I was going to say, that's what that was part of my reasoning for saying how, how you know, 2019... You know, you've finished. You've done your fifteenth. You're entering your fifteenth year as a festival. You get yeah. you get awarded for your services to Black Minority Ethnic Film Industry. You're you've obviously got lots of ambitions, lots of ideas about how you're going to smash 2020. And like for many of us, um, those those had to change the the focus, the direction, the aims and ambitions for all of us. And especially a film, fa- and and, in, and obviously in the context of a film podcast, talking to a film festival founder, for a film festival that relies on people gathering in masses to sit in enclosed spaces and watch films, that pretty much rips up your rule book if you can't get in a room and sit <laughs> sit with strangers in packed houses. But I thought, twelve months in, there's a there's a moment to sort of draw breath, look at what happened, look at lessons learned, look at what people did that actually. As in response to it and how that might look in the future and what that might mean for the future. So you, with all your experience with the film festival and with what you learned during 2020, are a perfect case study and a wealth of experience to draw on. So that's the context. So we're going to do the future of film and cinema from a British Urban Film Festival point of view and your personal point of view as well. I don't think you have to speak as a kind of corporate body. I think, you know, we'll do a bit... Of, you can do as much crystal ball gazing as you like in terms of this. In term, If we start off at the beginning then, you know, what, as, as a time of year, what, what's, your, what's your festival window usually? When, when, does, when does British Urban Film Festival take place in the year? 
So normally the festival will take place around early autumn. So September, October is usually when we would host the festival in a traditional sense with uh, our partnerships with various cinemas and organisations such as Channel 4 in the past, BBC Films, ITV, etc. Uh, and BT in 2017. So we would normally host a festival around those kind of key months. Yeah. Now, obviously, in the, in the UK, September and October is traditionally kind of marks the awards season. So uh, around about the same time, you'd have London Film Festival um, in September. You'd have Rain Dance. Um, and then towards the back end of autumn, you'd have your specialist film festivals like um, Iris Prize um, in October and then Aesthetica in November. So Buff would be re at the beginning of that, just prior to Black History Month. Yeah, and you've in September you've also got Toronto. You've also you've got, got Tor- yeah. I think you've got Venice as well. I think haven't you? Uh, Venice just beforehand. Yeah, that's right. So it's a, it's a it's a very busy period for film festivals, and it's an important period in the festival calendar. Now, obviously, as you enter twenty twenty. You're, you're getting your ducks in a row. I'm guessing you're, you're making your tentative approaches to those sponsors to see if they want to come on board again. And you're beginning to go, right, okay, where are the films showing and what films are we going to show? And then the COVID is is creeping across the world. And by February, I mean, I don't know if you went to Berlin Alley, but it, it, it felt like, it felt pretty apocalyptic in, 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 the, in the pre-sense I didn't think it, I didn't I didn't feel like it was a last hurrah, but um, as we as we sit here now, it, what is Thursday the twenty fifth of February? Pictures are appearing on my timeline on on my social media, reminding me of what I was doing in Berlin twelve months ago, and it feels like a world away. So, when did when did the impact of COVID begin to sit in? Sorry, settle in for for British Urban Film Festival. When did you begin to sort of go? Hold on a minute. This is this this might not be our year to be having a physical festival. I'll be honest with you, Stuart. Um, in answer to that direct question, um, we've never truly, and to this day, we've not felt the impact of COVID compared to other festivals or other kind of film events initiatives that truly do depend on the kind of uh, face-to-face experience. Right. Um, and the reason I said that was because um, over the last four or five years, um, since my wife, Claire, who's got a track record in marketing and PR, yeah, um, what she identified was that um, kind of keenness to pivot at the earliest opportunity. And by pivot, that was in the sense of with what was happening on the wider scale, not just in film, but in television with mm-hmm. the likes of B as a broadcaster, who were stepping into the world of pay TV and sports, which Sky had dominated for the best part of 20 years. Indeed. And here's BT with no broadcasting track record whatsoever. And they launched a whole channel in 2013 off the back of the success of the Olympics. And the whole industry was thinking, how on earth are BT going to take on Sky with no track record, no content, no archive whatsoever. But what people forgot was that BT is one of the biggest British telecommunications media companies that we have. So if anyone was going to take on Sky, 
it was BT. Mm. And because BT are a tech company as well as a media company, they have that foresight to be very innovative in terms of how they present sport to the masses. Um, And one of the first things they did um, was when they announced that they were going to enter um, the sports broadcasting market, that they were going to give it away to the public. So the premise was if you had a BT landline, which in 2013, (coughs) a lot of people were deciding, well, I don't really use my house phone anymore. I'm always on the mobile, Mm. you know? So really people weren't paying line rentals. So BT said, well, how do we kind of value this kind of archaic form of tax, which is what a line rental is? Mm. So what they said was, we'll give it away. And in return, if you have BT line rental, you can subscribe to our BT sport channel for absolutely no cost, free. So obviously, to hear something being given away for free, it's like, what's the catch? And BT said, well, if you have Lime Mental, you can subscribe to BT Sport. So that immediately caused a massive tremor in the industry because in that moment, Sky couldn't counter. They couldn't say, well, we're going to give away our broadband for free. No, we couldn't do that. But because BT kind of knows where all the pipes are, all the lines are, the broadband, etc., mm. they could afford to take on this risk. And because of that, it there was a significant impact in terms of where you were able to watch the Premier League and the Champions League. And obviously in later years, they were able to spend billions of pounds acquiring all these sports rights to attract customers. So that kind of free premium kind of idea, it kind of paid off in the early part of BT's life. But then in later years, they then had to become like a Sky and started charging um, subscription packages. Um, But the reason why I mentioned BT was because that kind of example of someone entering a new kind of sphere with no track record, but having that foresight to pivot was kind of, was the thinking for Buff to kind of pivot very early from a traditional cinema film festival experience to an online digital TV experience of the film festival. Yeah. So what we did in 2015, um, so we've been kind of going down this road for the last four or five years, was we started to repurpose what we showed in the city on television. So we worked with broadcasters in the past, such as Together TV, which in the past was known as Community Channel. And we were able to show part of our film festival selections on TV. So across a week or a weekend, depending on what kind of suited the tastes of the audience, we were able to show a collection of our film festival selections, which meant that the shelf life and the exposure of those films was extended. Because normally with film festivals, you get a two-week run and then that's it. What happens after that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so obviously in my experience, it's very important for filmmakers to capitalise on that initial exposure and not resting on their laurels because there are new audiences appreciating these films on a regular basis. I mean, you only have to look at what people were talking about during COVID, kind of harking back to yesteryear, to films 20, 25 Mm. years old. And there's people that have never seen these films. So can you imagine, you know, all that potential just lying in a back shelf or on a hard drive or a Betamax or whatever? 
And so for us, repurposing has always been part of our kind of key objective with the festival. How do we package this film to reach our core base, but also to extend it to the wider mainstream? So one of the ways we were able to do that was working with broadcasters like so in a sense, Emmanuel, what you're saying is is that you you were already as as a festival thinking of how people access film as much as you were about growing the festival. Yes. It's interesting because this is a similar conversation I had with Damien Spanley of Curzon. He said right. his, he he said, you know, it's it's a decade since Curzon vertically integrated the idea of day and date releasing and stuff. Whereas we spent the whole of 2020 talking about it like it's arrived from Mars. Sure. Uh, you know, like, like, like the, the only thing that ever existed was 16 weeks in the cinema and a film gets a release. So, so you as a festival were already engaged with that idea that not all your viewers were going to come to the site where you show the films. They were going to choose to watch it at their leisure or at a d designated time that you did in partnership with someone that could show them it. Sure. I mean, we were under no illusion that we were going to suddenly kind of transpose 60 film festival selections and you immediately watch all of them mm. on television. Um, Channel 4 was one of our kind of early partners as well. Yeah. And in 2014, um, in the days of Shooting Gallery, which I'm sure you remember, which was a short film strand commissioned by Channel 4, where mm. they would show the very best short films, not just from the UK, but around the world. Yeah. Um, and we, we were one of the last partners um, to be tapped up to showcase buff content. So in 2014, we were able to show two films from our festival, one called Sunny Boy, mm -hmm. directed by Jane Gull, and the other film was Driftwood, directed by James Weber, um, who's gone on to do great things in the industry and is someone who I regard as a friend. Um, and a and a, so, and a, and a double-time guest on the podcast. Indeed, indeed. So if you're listening, James, check's in the post. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so, yeah, so Channel 4 already were very um, keen to showcase buff content, not just on television, but online as well. And obviously now with the advent of all four, um, Channel 4 are now working with the likes of the Iris Prize to repurpose content that mm -hmm. would normally be shown... Um, in the case of Iris, in Cardiff. Um, but obviously last year, they, like many festivals and organisations, had to make that pivot. But yeah, like I said, we, we've worked with all of the broadcasting and I've always had these conversations about how best to repurpose the content that we're already making available to audiences. Okay, okay. so that's, 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 that's a really interesting point. That's a really position to be in the sense of you were ready for a COVID before COVID needed to be ready to be to be prepared for, in a sense. You kind of had experience yes. of reaching an audience beyond yeah. advertising. Here's a film at this day at a London film at a London cinema on this at this time. Okay. Sure. Before we go into what you actually did this year with uh, with Apple TV, which is uh, which is what we want to talk about as an example of solving the solution of 2020. You also, as part of that pivot and adapting to 2020, <clears throat> took a decision to help fund black filmmakers in wake of government funding that didn't help them. So, do you want to talk about why you why you felt you needed to do that and what that sure. what that what you feel that's achieved as well? Yeah, I think in many ways, for me, that was one of the most satisfying things that I have ever done. Not nope. just in 2020, but just throughout my kind of journey. In, in this business because mm -hmm. I, I thought it, it spoke to 
who I am as a person. I've always been someone that has been ready, willing and able to help my fellow brother and sister um, at great expense to me, not just financially, but emotionally as well. Uh, not many people um, can travel the path that I have traveled. And I wouldn't advise anyone uh, to take this path, not unless they're prepared to take on all the costs that are involved. And there are a lot of hidden costs which are not shared publicly by many people or public figures. Um, obviously, in speaking to you, I'm very happy to kind of share part of that story. And so the reason why I decided to fund uh, Black filmmakers um, at the height of the pandemic was, as you alluded to, one, because of the widespread uh, response to the government's launch of the COVID insurance scheme. Yeah. And what quickly became apparent was that this wasn't going to benefit a lot of black filmmakers, um, because obviously in my experience um, of the film industry, especially with black filmmakers, a lot of them are all about getting the film made. You know, the whole kind of getting the cast and crew together, making sure the story is how it appears on screen as it was in scripts, all mm. the basic stuff. But when it comes to the business of film and the film business, the kind of the nuances, what you need to know, who you need to speak to, accountants, lawyers, contracts, all, all the legalese that are involved. Mm. Um, a lot of black filmmakers are still found wanting in terms of how to communicate that uh, in their pitch decks, in their pitches, and just in their overall presentation. Because at the end of the day, film is a business, even though in many aspects, it doesn't appear like it's a business. Mm. It's a free for all. It's a pursuit. It's a labor of love. It's a hobby. But when you kind of, when you drill it down, it is actually a business and a lot of... It's commercial It's commercial art, isn't it? It is, it is. And a lot of, there are a lot of livelihoods at stake. And obviously at the time of the government launching this scheme, there was a lot of um, kind of concern about what's happening to the cinemas. You know, there's a lot of freelancers working in cinemas, a lot of self-employed people. Um, and a lot of people were fearful that they were going to kind of fall... Um, under the poverty trap because there was nothing to rescue them. And the, uh, the chancellor had to come up with this um, SEIS package, um, no relation to the SEIS scheme. It just stood for the same thing. Yeah. But, Confusing um, for all of us. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. So obviously being aware of what was going on and with my experience of black filmmakers very much at the forefront, I decided in the summer to kind of, assess, well, where is my position in all of this? It wouldn't make sense to just sit back and watch a lot of hardworking creatives, writers, producers, directors, whatever, mm. kind of fall by the wayside with kind of nowhere to go, no outlet to kind of continue pushing their art um, and their reason for being for many people. Because without art, uh, a lot of people that I know are really kind of in a very dark place in that there's literally no other option. Mm. Um, and then you had George Floyd um, at the tail end of May, I believe, early June, when when um, Mr. Floyd passed away and kind of the furore, not just in America, but worldwide, in terms of what the impact was of this um, man's death was. Mm. And so what quickly became apparent was a lot of prominent black figures um, felt compelled to offer themselves. Uh, some people just didn't know how that would present itself, whether it was 
supporting people financially, just being there to speak to someone, uh, to share whatever. Everyone was just kind of, where is my position in all of this? Yeah. Where is my reason to kind of serve or to be selfless, to offer myself? Um, and at one point I just thought, well, do you know what? I've got to focus on the festival first and foremost. I've got to make sure that we're going to host the festival because we were still getting submissions. Obviously, I just received my MBE medal. So off the back of that, there was a buzz. We were getting even more submissions mm. because suddenly my MBE was exposing me to obviously more people. Yeah, which is good, which is good news, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, uh, so it was a great time for us financially in terms of getting all these submissions and being exposed to more filmmakers. But obviously we were kind of working out, well, where are all these films going to be shown come the end of the year? So in many ways, we weren't bound by the September-October deadline because, as you and everyone else knows, we didn't know when the pandemic was going to end, when restrictions were going to be lifted, how ultimately this would affect businesses like film, cinema, TV, broadcasting, etc. But as it's turned out, we've been, as an industry, extremely robust in terms of adapting to the challenges and how to continue to entertain the masses to keep people occupied and kind of making them feel that they're not missing out. Yeah. You know, from going to the cinema or going to film festivals, etc. So with regards to supporting black filmmakers, what I decided to uh, do was I'm not going to wait for the government to act as this support blanket. I would be that support blanket um, just because one I, I know and I share the pain of black creatives on a daily basis. I get emails. I'm inundated with emails, random direct messages, phone calls from people I've never heard of, from mutual friends and acquaintances just saying, Emmanuel, can you help me with my film? Can you share this? Can you retweet this? Can you put a bit of money my way? Can you connect me to A, B or C? And obviously I can't spread myself that thinly. Of course, of course. I just said, do you know what? I'm going to invest, but this is what I'm going to invest. I'm going to support any black creative that has got a crowdfunded project. So for me, that's proof of concept that, you know, people are ready, willing and able to support these Mm. projects financially. So that was really my kind of main criteria. Um, I was only going to support crowdfunded films from black creatives in the UK. Right. So when I launched that on July the 1st, um, I think within four days, I'd received 80 um, submissions. Um, from people that I knew, people that I didn't know, from established people, people that had just worked on major productions on the BBC, really? on on major films. So when I saw their names come up, I was just thinking, wow, I thought you were doing pretty okay. Um, and then here I am reading these emails and I'm thinking, so you really are finding it tough. Um Obviously, that, I'm taking that at face value. Yeah, but, but, it spe- but it speaks to the freelance experience of the creative industry, doesn't it? That, that the uh, chance yeah. of accessing some income is an opportunity to keep your head above water. It's not The perception is because we work in a glamorous field of entertainment that everyone's having a whale of a time when yeah. Tom Cruise is having a whale of a time, but there's a lot below Tom <laughs> Cruise that is not, isn't there? Sure, sure, sure. So, yeah, so immediately it... it it became apparent to me that, as you, as, you, as you said there, it doesn't matter how glamorous it appears on the outside, on the inside, you're hearing firsthand from learned people and just people on the, on the, on the come up, just kind of like, 
I need your help. And it's so good that you're willing to put yourself out there. And what I'd also said when I was kind of um, asking uh, for filmmakers was that over the past 15 years, without the content of these filmmakers, I couldn't be in a position to receive the MBE. And it was very important to me to state that point because as with every film festival, without that content, you can't actually function. So Mm. it's very important that you put the filmmaker front and centre of your strategy and of your thinking. Mm. So everything that we think about at the buff is filmmaker-centred. It's always about putting the filmmaker first because without the filmmaker, and if we really kind of drill it down, without the writer, because the writer is the most important person, I feel. And a a lot of what the writer brings to the process is overlooked. It's not... um, remunerated or compensated, not nearly satisfactorily enough. And so Buffalo's always created frameworks and initiatives to make sure that writers and filmmakers are acknowledged accordingly. A lot of screenwriters right now, Emmanuel, are punching the air at your positive positive view of what the screenwriter does there. Yeah, absolutely. No, they should. They should (laughs) do it. So for me, it was very important to stress that publicly, that without you lot, I can't be the person that I am Mm. and I can't continue to do what I'm doing. So obviously I funded 23 projects in the end. um, Part part finance, not fully finance. Of course, of course. But because of that, um, there were lots of unintended, very fortunate consequences for me, not just personally, but professionally. Go on. For instance, um, Sky News had heard about this and they invited me on to talk about the scheme. Um, not just my scheme, but the Corona scheme as well. I also courted interest from certain universities to come and speak um, about the film industry. Um, and then one private financier uh, got in touch online and was prepared to financially support these filmmakers as well. And this was, um, and I'll be blunt here, a white uh film person who had no prior experience or acknowledgement of the black struggle, but because they kind of did their diligence and research, and he was actually someone that I actually came to know and know very well now. Good. um, He just said, do you know what? I love everything that you're doing. I like the fact that you're representing. And here I am, whatever you need me to do, I'll be here to support. And to this, to this day, I, I regard him as a very close friend. He's been a very, proud supporter of Buff. He's worked with us on the festival this year and continue to work with us in the future. So just from starting that one kind of idea, uh, it's spawned so many great things. Um, And I didn't expect much, to be honest with you, because that's the other thing with this thing. You think you're actually helping someone and in many ways you're doing yourself a disservice because in many ways you're not consistent with your personality or your kind of MO, your murder operandi. Mm. But for someone like me, it was a natural thing to do, as I was saying to you at the beginning. So obviously the response was incredible um, and, and it spawned so many great things as well. Obviously with those productions, not many of them have been able to shoot because of the pandemic, uh, but that didn't stop me from continuing to financially support them and just stay in touch just to see what they're up to, whether they need any further help in terms of the film business, people to speak to, honing their script, all that kind of stuff, all the little things. Mm. Um, so it's, again, it's always about relationships in this industry. 
don't know who's struggling. You don't know who's doing well. You don't know who's watching you. And so by putting yourself out there, um, it, it was important to me to do that, number one. But two, because of the result of that, it's something that I wouldn't mind doing again. But obviously, with where we are now, there's so much to kind of grapple with, with the pandemic, with the festival, and with the film industry in general. But it's it's not for the faint of heart. No, friend. and it's interesting. It's interesting what you say, the, the, especially from because obviously you you had a you had a single you almost like a single reason in the sense of there wasn't much funding that seemingly was going the way of black filmmakers. So you thought you had to do something. But but as a result of that, um, there's this expression I got I got recently when I did I was doing these interviews with Inside Pictures participants is that one of the, one of the uh, one of the people on it said, "The more I do, the more coincidences that happen." <laughs> and it, and it sounds like sounds like what you've done there is like that classic. The stone has hit the water, and the ripples have just gone and gone and gone. And obviously, that's that's great news for you, but also it's even better news for the filmmakers you were able to support. Yeah. So it's sort of a, it's a full thing. The other thing I want to say on that, Stuart, is in many ways, I wouldn't say I felt the pressure internally, but there was almost like an expectation for someone like me mm. to do something because I wasn't obligated. Of to course do any not. Of no, this. of course not. No. I, I could have just carried on my merry old way and just prepare for the festival, mm. which was obviously important to us because obviously we still need to function. We still need to put bread on the table, food on the table, etc. So obviously I could have been very selfish about uh, 2020 after the MBE, just kind of hunkered in my bunker and just come out in September. And say, Ta-da, here's a festival. Yeah, because obviously there's one thing to say, there's one thing to be able to sort of put yourself on the line and support people, but there's also, that's in the face of not just the general uncertainty, but the uncertainty for your film festival. You know, you 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 run that risk, don't you, of 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 the risk of, of business in general as well as everything else. So to put every more, every day. Every yeah, day. To put yeah. more to, to put to add more risk and more variables to the problem of solving British Urban Film Festival as an event and as a as a as a thing for people to recognise. Your uh, but like you say, the, the the blowback is your relationship with filmmakers is strengthening. And your reputation with filmmakers, probably beyond the probably beyond the filmmakers that you've you've directly helped, is this guy's on our side. So that that helps create an even bigger sort of um, what do you say um, a sort of bigger bigger sort of positive feeling towards your film festival. So it's kind of while you might not have thought, yeah, this will make me everyone think I'm great. But in a way, it's kind of it's had that effect as well. So you've got the people who needed the help and they've got it, and then. As as that as that begins to grow and people talk about it and people are able to crack on and make films or develop films, it's- but also because everything is so uncertain and fragile and volatile, I yeah. think for many people it just kind of signalled an assurance and a kind of someone is there, you know, mm. that support blanket. Like I said, you know, in spite of everything that's going on in the world, here's Emmanuel that's willing to put himself out there and support. No matter what he's going through, he's still looking out for other people. And no, so, you indeed. Know, that's that's something that speaks to my core. Like I said, so no, 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 and, and that's it, I, I was I was I was very happy to do that. Um, but like I said, I did feel an internal pressure, but ultimately, just through thinking it through with my wife, you know, because obviously with the pandemic, you have a lot of time to think and just kind of well, what is our purpose in life? What is our view of the world? What is our position in it? And Fortunately, we're in a position to do what we did. Obviously, in the case of me personally, 
I was able to financially support people, etc. On that point alone, congratulations, and and I think you know it speaks for itself. It doesn't need me to uh, to coat it in in any in anything more. So we've discussed what you did personally in response to what was going on for filmmakers, but obviously you still had a film festival to put on, and part of putting that film festival on was obviously the realization that quite possibly and practically there wasn't going to be a physical festival, and as we've already established you had that experience of delivering the film festival to audiences that weren't physically in the room with you while you showed the movie. So Apple came to British Urban Film Festival and an organic relationship was formed. Do you want to talk us through that process? Sure. So the process with Apple, uh, as you said, was very organic. Um, And kind of what triggered it was, I believe it was around the time of the BAFTA TV Awards. Okay. Which was in July um, which was broadcast virtually. Um, and I guess uh, the guys at Apple were watching that, uh, as was I at the time, thinking, okay, BAFTA have pulled this off. They were able to pull off an awards ceremony. Um, and for us, uh, the end of July was a month after we had closed submissions for the festival. Um, and obviously we received uh, nigh on uh, a thousand submissions. And then the process then started to then shortlist um, to have a programme of films for the festival. Mm-hmm. Obviously, at that point, we didn't know how many films we were going to shortlist because obviously with cinemas, you afforded the possibility of the number of screens to show these films, the number of venues, the number of days, time slots, all that sort of stuff. But obviously, we didn't have that because we didn't know when the cinemas were going to open. So already we were starting to strategically think, well, how many films could we show this year? Uh, in the absence of a cinema. So immediately we were thinking uh, of potentially hosting the films via our own website, which would mean obviously banking on our reputation to get millions of people watching the festival online, mm-hmm. which obviously what, is what a lot of film festivals um, ended up doing, um, just setting up various uh, film festival platforms, working with companies. Yeah, I mean, I was, for example, I watched, um, I, I attended Frightfest sat where I'm talking to you now, you know, in, in October. And how was the experience for you, just out of interest? Um, it, was, it, was, um, it was good to feel part of an event because as a, as, a, as, a, as a person on their own in COVID, you can feel a bit detached from the world. Um, admittedly, sure. I do a lot of podcast recording, so I'm fortunate that I get to speak to lots of different people that way. But, but it was great to watch a film in real time with other people, even though I'm sat in the same office to sit in when I'm talking to people on a podcast, but then go on to Frightfest's Facebook page and be talking to people like I would do if I was in the foyer of Leicester Square Empire Cinema. You know, so in that sense, the sense of event was the important thing. The real-time bit made it feel like you were involved in something and you kind of... you felt, I mean, I was reviewing stuff, so I was kind of engaged on the level of wanting to talk about the film anyway. But yes, it felt, it felt like an event... Yeah, I mean, it certainly felt, um, just looking at everyone else, what everyone else was doing, that there was a lot more um, film festivals, a lot more film screenings that took place in 2020. Mm. So it was almost like, if, well, is, there's surely going to be some fatigue here. I mean, obviously you had the traditional festivals having to pivot, but then you had all these new kinds of film events and festivals. Yeah. So obviously as, as a customer, as an audience uh, member, you're thinking... Can I go to all these events? 
I mean, you can because obviously you've got nowhere to go. So yeah, 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 yeah. So I guess that's one benefit. But then on the other hand, it's about that kind of because some the reason why people go to film festivals they know what they're getting. So when you go to London Film Festival, you know what you're going to get. When you go to Iris, you know what you're going to get. When you go to Sundance, you know what you're going to get. When you come to Buff, you know what you're going to get. So that was, again, something uppermost in our thinking uh, around about July time. So off the back, again, another of these unintended consequences was off the back of uh, the finance scheme that I launched, that I had various executives, producers, just following me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. Um, I had no reason to think, why were these people following me? It's only now, um, six, seven months down the line, that I hark it back to that one action that I did to support black yeah. filmmakers. So uh, one such Apple executive started following me on LinkedIn. Um, and obviously I was just naturally curious, thinking... I wonder why um, she's following me. Um, and then it occurred to me, ah, oh, Apple. Yeah, they they could host the festival. <laughs> no, no, no harm in asking. So that's how the conversation started on LinkedIn. Um, and then within a couple of days, she asked for a Zoom meeting. Uh, first Zoom meeting, we spoke for two hours. Yeah. Um, obviously, she'd heard about my MBE. She'd done some diligence about the festival. And what she disclosed to me was that what Apple were looking for was for uh, a, an organisation that could really speak to the black film experience in the UK. Wow. And and Buff was the only organisation. So, 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 so in a way, a, a kind of amazing, happy accident of you thinking, I'll approach them, and you approach yeah. them, and they're already thinking, we want to speak to a black filmmaker-focused organisation. Absolutely. Fantastic. So I, I, guess, I guess they were triggered by many things, you know, with what, I've been, what I was doing in 2020 and prior to that, and then with George Floyd as well, as I was saying to you, a, a lot of the industry just felt compelled to do something. So here was Apple just kind of going into positive action mode. Mm. Um, and over the course of that two-hour meeting, um, they showed me examples of people that they had worked with, such as Noel Clark. Idris Elba, Letitia Wright, but not really worked with a black film organisation. Right, okay. Uh, they had worked with other film organisations to repurpose content, such as BAFTA um, and BFI. The problem was that BAFTA don't own any film content. So that was merely kind of for for showcase purposes. Yeah. Um, same with London Film Festival. But obviously with BAFTA, we have all of our content in that we aggregate the content because obviously we don't own content other than what we produce ourselves and obviously right. we'll talk about that later on so that was part of the two hour conversation just letting apple know that this is who we are what we represent what we do and what our business model is but ultimately what i asked apple for was can you give me a home for the festival and without hesitation they said yes hi this is Stuart, your host just butting in to um break up this podcast that uh, lasted 80 minutes as a conversation so I thought in the post-production, I would do it as two separate podcasts, roughly 40 minutes each, to make them easier to consume for the listener. So this is end of part one of two. Part two of two, coming soon. All readily available in the archive.
Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.